Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Radio EcoShock, The Onion Radio News, Ring of Fire, The David Letterman Show, and NPR. like to quickly walk you through what we concluded are the main findings of the Working Group 1 Fourth Assessment Report here this week. Towards a much warmer and more turbulent world with millions of people at risk. Weather patterns are changing. More heat waves, more extreme weather from droughts to hurricanes, more intense rain. No question that the increases in these greenhouse gases are dominated by human activity. These are the places that see, you'll see drought and problems. And you're talking about South America, northern India, western China, north central Africa. In the U.S., it's Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico. And it's a serious challenge. And one of the things that uh, uh, I am proud of is this administration has done a lot on advancing new technologies that will enable us to do two things, uh, strengthen our economy and at the same time be better stewards of the environment. Global warming is for real and we are to blame. And it could happen all sooner than we previously thought. Now, they say that those scientists in Paris will estimate that between 1.1 and 3.2 billion people will suffer from water shortage problems by 2080. Now, that's not your grandchildren, that's your children. And between 200 million and 600 million more people will be going hungry. That means the very real possibility of food and water shortages much faster than we thought. But U.S. Energy Secretary Samuel Bodman today called America a small contributor to climate change. If we keep emitting greenhouse gases at current rates, we'll see bigger changes in the coming, in this current century than we did in the last century. Did he ever give a plausible reason why he would remove that warning to Congress? He called it speculative musing. Speculative musing. Speculative musing. Nature has been driving home the message for years. A time lag that there is a... Uh, if you will, a a memory or an overshoot. Another way people have talked about it is an unrealized warming or even a committed warming. So based on the greenhouse gases and aerosols that are already in the atmosphere, if those were to be kept constant, you would still see a warming of a tenth of a degree. And on the future rise in sea level, anything from 18 to 59 centimetres, just over six inches to two feet, less than before, but we're told more reliable. 
talks of rising oceans. It's really kind of frightening stuff inside here. The stuff that science fiction books and movies are made of. Melting ice, heat waves, and even stronger storms. Many scientists are now not so worried that the Atlantic will change abruptly as a result of global warming. For the first time in the history of human existence, we have fundamentally affected systems that determine life on the planet as a whole. The report found that even if we dramatically reduce carbon emissions starting today, so much is built up in the atmosphere that the effects will be felt for centuries. There is no rewind button. It is the definitive report on global warming, and it's bright. to run out by 2036. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The Department of Energy released a grim forecast today indicating that proven U.S. wind resources are sufficient to power turbines for only three more decades. This comes as a blow to Americans who have pinned their hopes on wind as an inexhaustible source of clean energy. President Bush addressed the nation. I have called for the creation of helium-filled mylar drilling platforms. If there's any wind up there, we're going to find it. This follows another recent DOE report stating that solar panels installed on your house could likely anger the sun. I listen to the wind, to the wind of my soul. Where I'll end up, well, I think only God really knows. I've sat upon the setting sun. But never, 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 never I never wanted water once Never, never, never For almost eight years, the Bush administration, Republicans across the country have been waging a war against the environment. The next president is going to have to reverse the damage before this planet reaches a point of no return. Here to tell us what needs to be done in the next few years is author Chris Mooney. So, Chris, Arnold Schwarzenegger gets it out of California. Charlie Crist out of Florida even gets it on on the fact that we have to do something now in order to reverse the trend that we see with the climate change. Uh, Why is Bush, I mean, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but he, he still doesn't get it, does he? Well, he started to get it a little bit more over the past one, say, two years. He actually will mention it in State of the Union addresses now, and he's not quite as much in denial about the science of climate as before, but I think people still think he might be a real roadblock if he tried to get legislation this year. So 
People want action on global warming and just waiting for him to be gone. Well, what's the first, where do you start? I mean, I think sometimes people look at the global warming issue and they say it's just too big, it's just too willy for me to get my arms around it. I can't really do anything about it. But that's wrong thinking because there is a place to start and a place to finish, isn't there? Absolutely. I think you've got to break it down. Uh, domestic and international, that's the breakdown. And domestic, you know, U.S. policy, what do you do? You've got to pass a bill to cap greenhouse gas emissions. If it's a McCain-Clinton race or a McCain-Obama race at this point, actually both candidates are going to want to do that. You've got to adapt to climate change domestically because some of it we cannot stop anymore. Uh, and you also have to invest in new energy technologies that are going to eventually make us able to power our societies. But then you also got to go to the international arena and negotiate the successor to the Kyoto Protocol. Okay, well, let, let's analyze both those parts just a little bit. First of all, domestically, I mean, you don't, we're really behind now, aren't we? I know something that you write in your, in your article, it almost is going to take something that looks like a, uh, a Manhattan Project kind of uh, undertaking where we spend about $150 billion to get it right. Um, but the, the other part of that is we have to move away from this idea of saying, well, we can't do this because it, it's, it doesn't make economic sense. The truth is it does make economic sense, and we can do it. And the first place to start is with an all-out effort. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think one of the reasons we're getting closer to action on global warming is this economic argument saying, you know, it'll kill the economy. People have just, you know, shot that through full of holes. And, in fact, the other argument is, is very strong, which is that it'll be good for the companies that get a clue and realize that if they start producing clean energy, if they start making hybrids or whatnot, they're going to be the winners uh, if, in the new world that's coming. If you're sitting down and you're talking to somebody about the economic value of them making a transition and going ahead and getting started right now, what are, the, what are your talking points? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, you, first of all, you point to all the business leaders uh, that have come out, all, you know, sort of leaders of Ford, um, GE, and so forth, and say, you know, these are, these are some of the smartest um, corporate leaders in America. You know, if they think global warming has to be addressed, then are you, you know, what are you going to say to them? I think that's, that's a message that uh, should resonate even with, you know, market-based conservatives, economically-oriented conservatives, seeing people making money. And also, you know, you just make a bottom-line argument. Eventually, the world is going to cap greenhouse gas emissions. And that means that there's going to be a whole new regulatory and economic environment. And the best companies are going to be the ones that are ready for that. Well, why have the but, but at this point, I don't know if you've, you you know these numbers, of course. Exxon, $40 billion they made uh, last year. And when you look at the numbers of what did they spend trying to come up with al alternative energy sources, it was something like 3% of all that money, which is, you know, nothing. It's almost, it's, it's almost not even symbolic. Uh, why, why the dragging of the feet if, you, if, if we do know that there's an economic advantage of them jumping ahead of it? I mean, don't even, we, we even have the Saudi Arabia jumping into the idea of uh, alternative energy sources. It seems unlikely, but they are. Um, why, why the dragging of the feet for, from so many large corporations? Well, you know, you've got to um, specify which corporation, I think, because Exxon has taken one approach, and a lot of other leaders... Um, like BP have taken another one. Tell us the best story. Tell us the best story out there about a, a corporation that says, you know, well, we can do better and we're going to take a shot at it. Gosh, I don't know who to pick. I mean, you know, I think BP has been leading for a really long time, uh, taking on the slogan Beyond Petroleum. Um, but you know what? There used to, I think the real story is the change in industry because there used to be this global climate coalition. It organized all of these companies, uh, you know, um, all these energy companies, Shell, uh, Exxon, all the others, uh, in opposing the Kyoto Protocol and opposing uh, action. And what happened is that the Global Climate Coalition just sort of shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. 
and eventually uh, ceased to ceased to really be a strong organization. And so what happened was people just started jumping off that ship. And yeah, they're, they're sure sure there's still some corporations uh, that are not as devoted to taking strong action. And I think ExxonMobil will be one of them. Uh, but eventually, we're going to see uh, the other companies making real money, and everyone's going to notice. Well, what are the suggestions that you're hearing out there as you listen to some of these candidates talk? I, I, I was almost uniquely Democrats talking, I mean, seriously, about specifics about how they're going to solve the problem. Uh, uh, cap, and, uh, cap and trade, for example. Tell us what that is. Cap and trade is uh, the approach that worked really well when we wanted to cut emissions of uh, sulfur dioxide. Um, that were causing acid rain, and so the idea is to bring that to bear on global warming, too. And what you do is the government steps in and sets an economy-wide cap on total emissions, and over time the cap gets tighter and tighter, so you're, you're slowly ratcheting down the amount that we're emitting. But everyone who's polluting under the cap-and-trade system gets permits or allowances to pollute so much, um, and the total permits or allowances are equal to the amount of the cap. So if a company comes along and finds a new way of doing things whereby they don't use up all their allowances, they then are free to trade them to another company that maybe can't can't stay under. It's uh, you say they trade, they sell them, don't they? I mean, yeah. I mean, it gives as soon as you cap uh, in this way, you give the allowances to permit uh, a lot of economic value. I mean, when the average temperature of February is 68 degrees here in New York City, yeah. that ain't right. No. Uh, and, and anyway, so now here's a guy who's going to tell us, and believe me, he's optimistic. I'm not. I think it's too late. I mean, how, how many hurricanes have we had in the last week? What, what 20? 25? Yeah, at least. I mean, we're talking about lousy killer hurricanes. For a long time, I thought that they were keeping something from us, and I thought what it was that we were actually, we'd busted out of our orbit and were hurtling toward the sun. Well, thank God it's not that, yeah. but it might as well be that. Yeah. And here's something else uh, people say, oh, well, you, you know, we're doing what we can whenever we have party toothpicks at the house. We, we, we try to use them again. <laughs> Fine. Use them again. Doesn't, doesn't make any... So we like to do whenever Larry mows the yard, we save the clippings for mulch. <laughs> Makes no difference, ladies and gentlemen. Until we get the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, we're screwed. 
We are walking dead people. We are the lost civilization. You're looking at us right here. That's it. Time to go. The cab is coming. <laughs> but Thomas Friedman will come out here and say, no, no, it's not too late. we got to get to work. I'll tell you why it's too late. We've had no leadership. Let's say this began in 1980. We have had no leadership. Nobody in the White House. No Republican, no Democrat, nobody has stepped forward. We haven't had leadership. No. Nobody has come forth. People are embarrassed to talk about it because right. they got all their big oil buddies. Big oil. Big oil. But I'll tell you something. <laughs> Forget big oil. We don't have enough oil to even worry about anymore. Not, not here in the North America, not even in the world. It's, it's that we have to find alternative forms of energy. And on the other hand... I don't even know why I'm talking about this, because it's too late. We are dead meat. Dead meat. Well, you know, it's good to see. How about that Republican convention? And by the way, the Republicans have taken climate change out of their platform. As far as they're concerned, everything's fine. Yeah. 96 in March? Yeah, just how we like it. Yeah. <laughs> we are so screwed. Ah. Uh, if everybody in the world right now right now began riding bicycles leave your limo in the garage everybody ride bicycles and we cut carbon emissions a hundred percent no more carbon emission and that was improving the layer of carbon around the atmosphere if everybody did that the planet the planet and you're thinking well that would be great wouldn't it yes it would be great but the planet would continue to heat at precipitous levels for 60 years we are so screwed talking with freelance writer and author Chris Mooney about the course of action we need to take in order to start reversing global warming. Finally, Chris Mooney is the author of The Republican War on Science and Storm World. You can check out his work on waronscience.com. If we listen to what the scientists say, and I know this is not, it's not all that specific because we, we hear different numbers, but I mean, if we hear, uh, where, where do we have to be, say, it by 2050, in order for all of this to, to, to have any, any any impact on really turning things around? I mean, what kind of percent reduction do we really need by then? The number that you're hearing pretty consistently from the scientific community, I'm even afraid they're going to make the number even harder to reach uh, in the next couple of years. But you're hearing something like 80 percent reduction by 2050, and, and that's not U.S. You know, we're talking about the globe. And, and so the real question in the science uh, community and also the environmental community are debating this as a matter of strategy is do you push through a compromise pragmatic bill in the United States that maybe doesn't get 80% but at least gets you something immediately so you can start cutting emissions? Or do you hold out for that 80% with the legislation you're trying to get in the next uh, couple of years? And there's a divide there between the Democrat contenders for president and McCain. 
Well, I mean, one thing that's interesting, I remember Clinton, uh, you know, somewhere around 1990, came out with some global change research. And it was actually, you know, it was very important stuff, but it was actually censored and phonied up a little bit, actually a lot, when Bush came into office. How does that put the average American at risk to have an administration that censors and changes the intent and changes the words and actually make it to to where the report sounds like something entirely different than what it really is? How does that put us at risk? Well, this is really horrible stuff, and this goes back to the the part of the equation I mentioned before, adaptation. So we've got to cut emissions, we've got to invest in energy technology, we've got to go international and negotiate a treaty, but also global warming is happening now, right? It's having real impacts, and our societies need to get ready. Well, the Clinton administration decided for the first time it was going to study how global warming was going to affect specific regions of the United States. So, for example, all the coastal cities and states have to worry about sea level rise. That's one of the most obvious examples, but there are many, many others. And so this was a comprehensive attempt to have the government study this. When it got into the Bush administration, not only did they not follow up because there was another study that was required by law to build upon this, but they actually sort of censored references to it out of government reports. You know, they they came up with this strategy of doing 21 little tiny dinky reports rather than the big one. There was all this messing around. I mean, it's just one of the many ways in which the Bush administration squandered uh, taking any well, you know, you know there's some there, we'll never know because Cheney has destroyed most of it or the courts have said we can't have it but you know there's there's really speculation that in the energy uh, meetings that Cheney secretly had with the biggest energy companies in 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 the world really that that was part of the plan to take what was actually emerging as new discussion points and to change those points of course we'll never know whether that's true or not because Cheney if he hasn't destroyed it he's made it damn near impossible for us to get that information. But, I mean, doesn't it come down to the fact that you have to get good information out there? The federal government has to prepare for what, as you put, as you as you say, targeted adaptation, where they can take measures in high high risk areas, and as you point out, a seawall in in to defend New York City from you know disappearing when Greenland melts. I mean, isn't that part of the role of government is to give get, to give our population a fighting chance and say, how can I adjust? Absolutely, I think any government that doesn't do that is abdicating its responsibility. Uh, luckily, I don't know that we have to build the seawall yet because Greenland's going to melt. I mean, the well, thing I is, know, but I'm, that's just yeah. an example. Yeah. That, that's an example of what I'm saying. Well, I think we should consider seawalls for a lot of places. One of them being, of course, New Orleans. Um, you know, all these places where you've got, got a rising sea. And you got a hurricane risk. You know, it's something to think about. It'd be also very expensive. The Dutch have managed to do it for their country, and they don't even face hurricanes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but but it, you know, that's just one, global warming is going to change. Agriculture. If you're in the West, California, um, the, the concern is that global warming is going to lead to declining mountain snowpack, and that's going to affect water supplies. That's going to be really big. I mean, there's all kinds of different adaptation measures, and we've got to get ready. You know, it's remarkable, but e- even the I mean, fairly conservative bunch of people, the, the people in the ski industry, I mean, these mega corporations that own the big mountains and they own ski resorts all over the world, they're preparing for it. The insurance companies are preparing for it. Uh, the, you know, there, there's all of these people that say, look, um, we want to do something different from what the Bush administration's actually done. We actually want to get ready for it. Um, do, do you see, do you think that that's going to continue? Is, is is there enough sense about how dangerous this really is to to our globe, to where you, you see people kind of in a self help mode right now? Yeah, I think the issue's tipped. 
I think Al Gore had a lot to do with it, Katrina, and a number of other developments over the past couple of years. I think that we're going to get action. I think that corporate America in its various aspects is going to continue to change. I think political consensus is going to continue to grow. I wrote this book, The Republican War on Science, and you know, came out in 2005. I could legitimately say that the Republican Party was generally against doing something about global warming. It's already harder to say that now. You get a lot of Republicans uh, moving towards the center on this issue and wanting to do something, including McCain, who's seen huge movement. Yeah, you're, but you're also an interesting thing is developing is this evangelical uh, this evangelical movement behind the fact that there is no global warming. Have you followed that? I mean, what what do you make of that? I I, I was I was skiing not long ago, and I was on a transport bus with uh, somebody that obviously described themselves as being somewhere from somewhere in Alabama. And I mean, you know, had all the makings of what, what, what I would probably, if I were guessing, yeah, this is Southern evangelicals. Matter of fact, basically came out and said that. But you know, it was this denial that it was taking place, and it was, it seemed to be based in his sense of uh, of his religion. What do you make of that? Well, there's a fight going on among evangelicals, it seems to me, between the sort of stewardship movement, which is saying, you know, we have a moral responsibility to be stewards of the environment, and it's biblically based. And that means we need to care about global warming. That's been a powerful movement. And there's been a backlash against that that's been led by people like Senator Inhofe, who's sort of the number one climate bad guy in uh, the U.S. Senate. And so I think that I think there's a real split. Um, but I think that the stewardship movement has been very powerful. And if we're seeing Republicans become more aware that they have to do something about global warming, it might be partly that there have been some inroads into their base there. Mm. So so you now have, it's not just the U.S., obviously, as you say, this breaks up into solving the problem domestically and internationally. You have some countries who are leaders already. I mean, you've got Sweden say that they're going to be, uh, they're, they're completely going to rid themselves of uh, fossil fuels. I mean, they're, they're going to, alternative resources are going to be how they power their country, and they say they're going to do that by 2020. Um, but then as they do that, you have India and you have China that, are now industrializing to the point to where they, you know, they're going to be huge users. They already are. China, I think, is, I don't know if they've surpassed the U.S., but they're damn close to it. Uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you lead them if we don't even have the moral ground to do that? How do you say, this is what you need to do unless we do it? Well, I interviewed climate policy experts. It's a great question. And what they said was that, you know, you don't lead them unless you first make a good faith effort to show that the United States is going to do something. Um, because they didn't have the chance to industrialize and pollute the heck out of things the way we did. So it's a little bit unfair to ask them to now hurt their economy, to cut back when we're not even doing it. And we've been enjoying all this prosperity for so many years by burning fossil fuels. So I think the strategy has to be, and I hope the next president agrees, uh, you know, you, you pass the domestic legislation, so you cap greenhouse gas emissions in the United States for the first time, and then, by December 2009, you go to the United Nations Copenhagen meeting, which is when the successor of the Kyoto Protocol has to be negotiated, and you say, look, the United States has taken action. We know we're sorry we took forever to do it, but we have done it. We have cut emissions. And now, India, China, we need you. We can work it out. We can work it out. Think of what you're saying. You can get it wrong and still you think that it's all Think of what I'm saying. We can work it out and get it straight or say goodnight. We can work it out. We can work it out. Life is very short and there's no time for fussing and 
The builders of a brand new city want to make their mark on the world by making no mark at all. The city is in the desert near the Persian Gulf, in the oil-producing state of Abu Dhabi. And if you believe the promotional video, the city will have no carbon footprint. Imagine. Abu Dhabi imagines an entire city that releases no greenhouse gas. Imagine a place where the challenge of living in an extreme climate is overcome at no cost to the environment. The place is called Mazdar City. When it's built, and Abu Dhabi has the money to build it, it's supposed to have 50,000 inhabitants. NPR science correspondent Joe Palka went there for our series Climate Connections with National Geographic. And Joe, how did this project get started? Well, the leaders of Abu Dhabi wanted to get into the alternative energy field, and they looked around the world to see where there was the Silicon Valley of uh, alternative energy, and there wasn't one. So they said, okay, we'll build it here. And I suppose they got plenty of silicon since it's in the middle of the desert, but setting that aside for a moment, why would Abu Dhabi, which is part of the United Arab Emirates, which has something like 10% of the world's oil reserves get into the subject of carbon footprints and alternative energy? Yeah, I mean, it's the obvious question, Steve, and I was going to ask Sultan Al-Jaber, who's the CEO of Mazdar Initiative, exactly that. As I say, I was going to ask him, but he beat me to it. Why is Abu Dhabi doing this? The answer is very simple. Number one, because we can. Number two, because we should. And because we believe that this is a natural extension for our involvement in the energy markets. A natural extension for Abu Dhabi's energy industry? Does he mean when the oil runs out, they want to be able to do something else? Yeah, imagine thinking that far in advance. But that's what they say they're doing. But there is another reason, Steve. Abu Dhabi wanted to show that it's aware of its carbon footprint today. So that's Khaled Awad. He's this Lebanese-trained engineer. He's the guy who's in charge of building the city. He's the first one there in the morning and the last one to leave at the end of the day. We thought this is an ideal opportunity I mean, for an oil producer to try to become a leader in, uh, in renewable energy and sustainability was something really fascinating. Fascinating if you have the money to do it. Yeah, and they do. I mean, as you said, this is an oil-producing nation. They're making a lot of money, and they've taken $4 billion in cash, and they're planning to raise another $18 billion. And Khaled says it's a very calculated decision to spend this much on this Mazdar city. I think this is exactly what we wanted to do, is to show people that, look, we're serious about this. We're going to put so much resources to do it right, and we want you to come and join us there, and then they, they will start doing it with us. So every time we put gas in our SUVs, a little slice of it may be going back to Abu Dhabi and and building this sustainable city. And how much interest is it generating around the world? Well, it it is getting quite a bit of interest. One of the first people to get on board with this was uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. They they get a lot of people say, we want to partner with you, but MIT was interested in this whole renewability thing. So they're helping Mazdar uh, make an institute that will do renewable energy. And they've also got a lot of attention from architects. Foster and Partners in England is one of the firms that's involved. They've designed the initial plans for Mazdar. You know, I talked to this uh, Nader Ardalan. He's an architect and a professor of architecture at Harvard. And he, he understands that, uh, that Abu Dhabi would like to do something about its carbon footprint. And he says Mazdar City is a start. This is really an experimental town. It's a little town. It has 50,000 people in Abu Dhabi, which is, uh, you know, growing to be uh, past the million people, this is a drop in the bucket. But this is a very important, precious drop. And Ardalan says he understands why an oil-rich country would want to do this kind of project. The people in uh, the uh, oil-producing world uh, want to be considered 
in a different light. They want to not be viewed as Bedouins. They want to be viewed as people of conscience and of education. Although I guess they have to now figure out what that looks like physically when you build a brand new city from scratch in the desert. Right, right. And the interesting thing is that Ardalan says, you know, it's going to help Abu Dhabi, but it's also going to help people in the West. Because many of us are being invited to design these buildings. And from these, whether they're successful and some uh, mistakes will be made, we'll be able to learn a lot. And I think we can then transfer this back to America, which is sort of funny, because normally the transfer has been American technology, Western technology going to the East. That's one of many architects intrigued by a plan to build a brand new city in the desert in the Persian Gulf state of Abu Dhabi. And Joe Palka, I'd like to know, if you get in a taxi, if you say, take me to Mazdar City right now, what do you see? Well, the first thing, the taxi gets lost because there's nothing to see yet. <laughs> That's what happened to us anyway. Uh, but when you do get there, it's just, it's just basically a sign and a couple of construction trailers. But even when you see the construction trailers, you know it's something different because instead of just a bunch of trailers sitting next to a vacant lot, it's got this giant tent over it. Why a tent? Well, they can save about 10 degrees of cooling because it's cooler inside these construction trailers simply because of the tent. The, the construction trailers are cooler because there's this shield over them. Basically. Exactly. The other thing that's kind of interesting, and the tent is a good example of this, is that they are taking old-fashioned uh, approaches to solving these modern problems. So even though the city itself will be completely modern, it won't look that different because when they went to build it, they realized that people in the Middle East had already figured out some of these ways to save energy. I talked with this guy, uh, Peter Sherratt. He's an energy consultant with the British firm called WSP, and it's one of the firms responsible for doing the design work at Mazdar. The visible part of the city is really a reinterpretation of an Arab town. The streets are narrow, they reflect uh, and diffuse direct sunlight, they create shaded areas, we create microclimates by using water, we create areas where people can walk in a very hot environment. The bits then that you don't see so much of, those are what we call the clever technologies, the energy systems, the distributions, the networks that make all of the city hang together. So what Sherrod's saying is they're going to use traditional methods to make a livable city in a beastly hot environment, but they're going to use some really clever technologies, too. What sort of clever technologies? Well, I'm going to talk more about that in tomorrow's story, but I'll tell you about one today. It's called the Personal Rapid Transit System. These are It's a kind of a public transport, but instead of buses with fixed routes and gas engines, these are pods, solar-powered pods. Have you seen the Jetsons? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, so it's like the Jetsons. You get into one of these pods, you punch in your destination, <laughs> and off you go. How can that save energy, though, if people are going individually in different places? Well, solar-powered, more efficient. You don't need to fill up a whole bus for getting three people across town. Makes more sense. Or even have a gas-guzzling taxi cab for that. Though. You got it. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. I need to laugh, and when the sun is out, I've got something I can laugh about. I feel good in a special way. I'm in love, and it's a sunny day. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. We take a walk. The sun is shining down Burns my 
China bans the release of carbon dioxide by citizens. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Chinese President Hu Jintao will yield to international pressure to curb his country's rampant air pollution by ordering all Chinese citizens to cease from exhaling carbon dioxide. Jintao expects CO2 levels in the atmosphere to begin dropping immediately. The glorious Chinese people have accepted their responsibility and have made strides to correct their error. Tensions mounted in Beijing when Tibetan monks protested the Chinese occupation of their homeland by hyperventilating on the steps of public buildings throughout the city. Thanks for listening, everybody. We have big news today. The word just came down that we've made the cut for the final voting process over at Podcast Awards, uh, podcastawards.com. And here's how it's going to break down. On or around October 22nd, the voting process will begin and it'll last for 15 days. During those 15 days, you can vote uh, once in each category of the Podcast Awards. Of course, we're in the political category and don't care at all about any of the rest. Uh, You can vote once in each category per day for 15 days. And so obviously there are going to be other political podcasts in the political section, uh, in the political category. And uh, and you may like some of the other shows, but tough luck. You got to pick one. And obviously we hope that you'll pick us. So those are the basics. Now... You know, we find ourselves in kind of a funny position because, uh, you know, we have a big election coming up in November, lots of talk about voting. Uh, Every four years, we get to hear stories about how the Republicans are trying to suppress the vote of the poor people, and they accuse the Democrats of voter fraud, which is, you know, in most cases ridiculous because it's not voter fraud until the people, uh, the, the fake people actually show up to vote. And so really what they're complaining about is registration fraud, which doesn't make any difference in the actual election. Um, but of course, uh, you know, what they do in, in poor urban areas is have, you know, one or two voting booths where in the uh, affluent white dominated suburban areas, they have 15 voting booths so that there's no lines and the poor people can't wait in line. So they have to go to work. You know this story. Well, what's ironic now is... Uh, the best of the left in this in the podcast awards voting, we kind of find ourselves in the Republican position. You know, I'll be totally honest. We don't have as many listeners as uh, some of the other shows. And so we're stuck in the position of wanting to suppress the vote. Obviously, if uh, went in and said, uh, you know, everyone should vote and whoever gets the most votes should win and that's totally legitimate and um you know that's kind of true and admirable to think but uh but if that happened we'd lose so 
instead of being deceitful and trying to suppress the vote, especially because I wouldn't know how, even if I wanted to, uh, what we have to do is turn out the base. That's the other Republican strategy. Um, you know, I wish I had some some other kind of, uh, you know, gift to give you, like uh, a ban on gay marriage or something like that, that I could promise uh, if you go and, and vote at the, at the podcast awards. But I don't have that either. So uh, maybe, you know, I'll put some thought behind it. I'll, I'll figure out some sort of a gift to the audience, like uh, like something along the lines of, you know, crushing other people's rights uh in favor of bigotry or something like you know something that you guys would really appreciate and uh and if i come up with a good idea i'll let you know and that'll encourage you to go vote over the next uh, couple of weeks in any case if you're the least bit interested in voting for the show uh helping us out there's two things i recommend you do subscribe to the blog and uh and send me an email uh you know if, if you if you want updates on you know reminders to vote things like that you can send me an email and i can send out uh, reminders for that because you know like believe me i'll probably forget to vote one of these days because you know every day for 15 days you probably let one go by but we'll all do our best try to remember to vote every day and a couple of ways for you to help remember subscribe to the blog and send me an email and uh, and let me know you want to be kept up to date. So that's it for today. October 22nd is the big day. Uh, set your calendars, uh, mark your alarms, and uh, and we're going to turn out the base, rally the troops, you know, that sort of thing. It'll be very exciting, I, I assure you. All right, so uh, that's it. Now uh, to uh, close as standard. Coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the border, and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com, where you can go subscribe to the blog. Thought,